We are back in the book of Acts this Lord's Day morning, and we have a sizable text. We will not read the entirety of this text. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, and our text runs through Acts chapter 7, verse 53. As much as I wanted to read the entire text, I thought it was wise not to do so. And many of you now are doubting whether we're actually going to cover the text. We will be at a high level this morning, but I do think it's one unit that we need to consider together as we're walking through the book of Acts. We have recently been in a sermon series on what it means to be a healthy church member, and in part we, just, we chose to do that sermon series because um, I had comprehensive examinations coming up, and uh, that's for my PhD program that I'm I'm privileged to participate in it, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, And uh, so I had those comprehensive examinations. And and by the way, we've been waiting for about four weeks to receive the results. Some of you know this. It goes out in our newsletter. But just this past week, as as nerves really did reach uh, kind of an apex for me, uh, it had been about four weeks since I took the assessment. I thought, well, here we go. You know, it must have been that bad. Um, But I heard back this week that I passed all three examinations, and so, yeah, praise God. Praise the Lord. So very grateful. I I really, when I found out that I'd passed all three examinations, I was worthless the rest of the day. I mean, completely worthless. I accomplished nothing. At the conclusion of the day, I, I remember thinking I was exhausted and did nothing all day long. So, uh, so praise God for that. And, and by the way, before we get into this text, as a congregation, you all have been so very supportive. I, I cannot express uh, my gratitude accurately and comprehensively. I'm, I'm so very grateful to be your senior pastor and, and for many reasons. And over those few weeks, I had to get away and I had to study. And, and uh, I just, I heard from so many of you that you were praying and uh, asking about how things were going and how things had gone over the last four weeks. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, so how did it go? Did you, did you, did you pass, you know, or do you have to retake this thing? Um, and also, many thanks to our pastoral staff who stepped in for three Lord's Days, three Sundays, and preached, and I was privileged to uh, sit in the pew and listen to the Word of God preached and continue to focus that sermon time that I typically spend, focus that time on preparing for my comprehensive. So thank you so much. I'm very grateful. We're nearing the end of this PhD program, and and uh, we'll let you know, you know, people are asking, well, when is graduation? Well, there is one more small step, okay? Um, but, uh, but I'm grateful to have that behind me. So thank you so very much. All right, enough of that. Acts chapter 6. We are going to read together verses 8 through 15. Okay, Acts 6, 8 through 15. And, uh, you know, whoever's doing the slides ha- has their work cut out for them. Um, I see you, brother. Uh, you've got this. Acts chapter 6, 8 through 15, and then we are going to skip to Acts chapter 7 and read verses 51 through 53. All right? I want you to get the beginning, and I want you to get the end through our reading time together, and then we'll unpack this at a high level. Well, because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks? In his word. Acts chapter 6, 
Beginning in verse 8, Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit of God these words. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then, if I may insert, Stephen preaches a lengthy sermon. And toward the conclusion of this spirit-empowered sermon, in chapter 7, verse 51, he looks the Jewish leaders in the eyes and says these words, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, church. You may be seated. The very first catechism, which is just another way to describe a book of questions and answers that summarize biblical teaching. So the very first catechism that we used in our family with our children was a little book, a little yellow book, called My First Book of Questions and Answers. And it began with questions like this, who made you? What else did God make? How many gods are there? How many persons are there in the one God? These fundamental and foundational questions of Christianity. Additionally, there was the question and the answer that we read and memorized together that asked this question. The question was, where is God? Where is God? Now, there are 
several ways one could answer the question. The catechism rightly answered the question, where is God? God is everywhere. I remember my children answering that question exactly. Where is God? God is everywhere. And this is a way of recognizing that God is not limited to space or time as we are. In fact, he presides over these things. He is sovereign over them and yet is present everywhere at all times as the sovereign ruler and the sovereign creator. So one way to answer the question, God is, or where is God, is God is everywhere. On the other hand, we could talk about, and the catechism did not do this, we could talk about what some have called God's manifest presence. This is just a way of saying that there are places or times or, or people even with whom God is present in Scripture in unique ways, at unique times, at unique locations. And so, for example, for example, throughout the Old Testament, one of those unique places where God promised to dwell was a place called the temple. And while God certainly was everywhere and presided above and sovereign over time and over space, he granted his unique manifest presence to Israel through a place, a building called the temple. Well, this question, where is God? We're going to come full circle to that reference to the temple in just a moment. This question, where, where is God, is one of the central questions of our text. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through Acts chapter 7, verse 53. It's one of the central questions. Where is God? And it shapes a controversy that materializes between the church, the early church, and the Jewish leaders. You might even say it this way, between the church leaders, the apostles, and those first deacons, one of whom was Stephen, and the temple leaders, those who were granted the stewardship of overseeing the dwelling place of God, the temple. This morning, what we're going to do, if you're taking notes, we're going to walk through this text at a high level. We will not cover every detail, I promise you. I mean, if we do, we're going to be here tomorrow morning still. We won't cover every detail. This has been a challenging sermon to prepare, not because it's an especially challenging text, but because I have chosen to bite off such a, such a large piece of the book of Acts. We'll do this at a high level in three stages, all right? And if you have additional questions about the text or about the sermon, as you know, you are free to reach out to me. I'd love to talk more about this glorious text. Well, here, here's the basic outline if you're taking notes. First of all, we're going to identify the accusations against Stephen. There's this controversy that really does center around the question, where is God, among other things, and we're going to begin by looking together at the accusations the Jewish leaders leveled against this man named Stephen. Second, after identifying the accusations, we will summarize Stephen's answers to these accusations. Those accusations will be twofold. I'll give you a little, little extra here. Accusations will be twofold, two of those. Stephen actually provides, I'm going to suggest, three answers, okay? So two accusations and then 
three answers that Stephen provides against those who are serving as his accusers. And then finally, after looking at the accusations against Stephen and Stephen's answers to these accusations, we're going to conclude our time together with application. How is it it that this text actually informs us as followers of Jesus Christ who are seeking to walk by the power of the Spirit of God? And, And again, just a A bit of a sneak peek, we're going to identify likely two applications, okay? So, two accusations, three answers, and then two applications. We're going to give that a shot. We'll see how this goes together, all right? Uh, Young worshipers, so for the younger children in the room, as we do this, as we walk through this outline, I want you to pay close attention to a couple of items in the text. So, parents or grandparents, feel free to talk with your younger worshiper. Even during the sermon, I'm going to assume you're talking about a wonderful sermon that you're listening to, okay? So feel free to talk to them about these two items in the text, okay? Younger worshipers, here they are. Name some of the people God was with in the Old Testament, according to Stephen. Stephen's going to summarize the story of the Old Testament. That's why this text is so long. Stephen summarizes the story of the whole Old Testament. And so he really begins with Abraham. There's one answer for you. Name some of the people that Stephen says God was with throughout the Old Testament. All right? That's one thing I want you to do. And then the second thing, younger worshipers, is this. How would you answer the question? Where is God? Now, you can jot that down even now, right? I gave you one possible answer. I actually gave you a couple. But write down where is God and then think about it throughout the sermon. And then parents, grandparents, guardians, ask your younger worshipers these questions later today or even on the way home, perhaps, after service. Well, back to our outline for the morning. Let's begin by looking together at the accusations against Stephen. And there are, as I mentioned, there are two of them. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 6, 13 and 14, we find both of these accusations. And they set up, that is the Jewish leaders, they set up false witnesses. That's important, by the way. There are actually commentators who want to argue that these are accurate accusations against Stephen. The text says otherwise. The text says they're false accusations. They set up false witnesses who said, here they are, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So first... Here they are. First, the Jewish leaders accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple, this place, this holy place. That's the first accusation. We have heard Stephen speak against God's presence. And these are guardians, as it were, of the temple. The second accusation is not only has Stephen spoken against God's holy temple, this place, God's presence, but secondly, we've heard Stephen speak against the law of Moses. The law delivered by God on Mount Sinai through Moses 
to the people of Israel. And these, these two items, by the way, church family formed the nucleus of Judaism in the first century. Their worship revolved around obedience to the law on the one hand in the temple on the other. So really, if you want to summarize both accusations, you could say something like this. Stephen rejects the Jewish way. Or Stephen rejects God's word. But those are the two accusations. And the last, just a little bit of background here because we haven't been in Acts for some time, a couple of months or so. The last few chapters in Acts have been setting up this controversy. And this controversy really does reach reach an apex and a climax in the ministry of Stephen. And we're going to be with Stephen for a couple of weeks. We'll be with Stephen next Lord's Day, if the Lord permits, uh, where Stephen gives up his life for the gospel. Looking forward, actually, to talking through that together. Um, but this, these few chapters have led us to this point where finally the church is in full-blown controversy with the Jewish leaders, and in particular with the leaders of the temple and the instructors of the law. In Acts chapter 3, you, you may or may not remember this if you were with us, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. And when they went up to the temple to pray, we read in the text, again a few chapters back, that they found a man who had been lame, crippled from birth. And the man presumably was not able to enter the temple. He sat at a gate called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. And so he sat there, and what was he doing? He was sitting there begging alms. A crippled man, of course, was entirely dependent on the generosity of other people around him to meet his needs. But it's no coincidence, and it certainly is not inconsequential in the text that the man is described as outside the temple. He can't enter the temple. He's crippled. And Peter and John respond, of course, to the man asking for alms, asking for a gift of generosity. You know, we don't have money. But what we do have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does what? He gets up. And he walks. He doesn't just walk. He's walking and leaping and praising God. And then where does he go? Do you remember this? He goes into the temple with Peter and John. And so now, through Jesus Christ, the man who was crippled from birth, now he's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God, and he's doing so in the temple, in the name of Christ. Now, this began this controversy, and I don't want to flesh out all of the details. We've covered them, but Peter and John eventually are taken into custody by the Jewish leaders because Peter and John have the audacity to proclaim the gospel in the temple, and the Jewish leaders take them aside, put them in custody until the next day, and they have a kind of interrogation that takes place, and what they tell them is, look, you've got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So stop it. And Peter and John don't listen. They're released, and they go right back at it. 
In fact, later, chapter 5 tells us that all the apostles are preaching the gospel. They're declaring the name of Jesus Christ in and around the temple, in and around Jerusalem. And what happens? Again, the apostles are arrested. And this time, the Jewish leaders are not quite as kind. But before they release them, they beat them. Then they release them. You see, so this is increasing. That is the controversy and the animosity between the Jewish leaders and the early church. So they beat them and they released them and they told them, of course, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. The apostles, of course, leave and what do they do? They rejoice because they've been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And so this leads us all the way to chapter 6 and chapter 7 where now Stephen One of the first deacons, introduced earlier in chapter 6. Now Stephen is in a full-blown controversy with the same leaders. Why? Because he's proclaiming the name of Christ. The early church refused to listen. And of course, this is going to climax with the first martyrdom of the church. Stephen, one of the first deacons, that's next Lord's Day, okay? So that's a little, a little background in light of those two accusations. Stephen speaks against this holy place, the temple. He's defiling it. And secondly, he speaks against the law of Moses. Now remember, are those true accusations? No, they're false. They're false accusations because what Stephen is going to do, now I'm jumping way ahead, but you need to get this. What he's going to do is he's actually going to say those who believe in Jesus Christ are actually the ones who affirm the law and the temple as fulfilled in Jesus their intended purpose. To reject Jesus is to reject Moses. To reject Jesus is to reject God's presence, you see. That's where Stephen's going to go. I've let the cat out of the bag, I know. But some of you knew that already. We'll get there. Those are the accusations. All right, don't keep cats in bags, by the way. Don't think it's a good idea. All right, secondly, I don't know. It came to mind, Pastor Tim, so out it came. Probably ought to increase that filter, shouldn't I? So the accusations against Stephen now, let's look together at Stephen's answers to these accusations. And I mentioned to you there were three of them. I'm going to give you all three of them because, again, this is somewhat of a complex text. It's really long, but I think we can simplify it to these things. So I'm trying to do a lot of summarizing for you. And I think if you keep all these things in mind, especially if you were to go and read the text in its entirety later, I think you'll notice all of these themes. Three, there are three answers that Stephen offers in response to the accusations, and he does it throughout this lengthy sermon. By the way, it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, by far, about second, I mean, I'm sorry, about twice as long as the one in second place. So well, Stephen maybe was long-winded, I don't know. Or Luke just wanted to record more of Stephen's sermon. Here are the three answers that Stephen offers. All right, you can jot these down first. God's presence was never limited to the temple. That's one of his answers. It's a theme throughout his sermon. God's presence was never limited to the temple, to a building. Second, the people of Israel rejected Moses and the law, as did the Jewish leaders 
of Stephen's day. And we said that a moment ago. Remember, they accused Stephen of rejecting Moses and the law. Stephen turns that around and says, you know your Old Testaments? Israel rejected Moses from the beginning of his ministry. And you are continuing to do the same thing. You're just like your fathers. That's what he says. So that's the second point. The people of Israel rejected Moses and the law, as did the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day. And then third, third, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and the law. That's good news. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and the law. We're going to look at each of these briefly. I'm going to try to anyway. First, a few examples of how God's presence was never limited to the temple. We're going to trace these themes together. Notice what Stephen declares. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. So look down at your text. 7, verses 2 and 3. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, what? Appeared. He starts his sermon observing that God appeared long before the construction of the temple. See? The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. In other words, Abraham was before the law and before the temple, you see, and God appeared to Abraham. By the way, there's some discussion as to how to put all this together in light of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and I am preventing myself from getting into all the minutia of how to do that, but if you have questions about that, I would love to have a cup of coffee and talk more about it. But it appears to me, in summary fashion, that there was an appearance, of course, according to Stephen's words and according to Genesis chapter 15, God appeared to Abraham prior to him leaving Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldeans. And then again, of course, afterward in Haran. And then as he led him after his father, Terah passed away. But the point is simple. God's presence and blessing is not limited to the law or to the temple, okay? Stephen includes Joseph in his retelling of the biblical story. So young worshipers, pay close attention. He starts with Abraham, and then he moves to Joseph. Doesn't spend long with Joseph, but he says in chapter 7, verse 9, and the patriarchs, now don't miss this, that is your fathers, as he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, were jealous of Joseph And they sold him into Egypt. But notice, God was with him. God was with him. Joseph did not have the temple, and yet he had the presence of Almighty God. God's presence is not limited to the temple. Finally, while God was certainly present in and through the temple constructed by King Solomon, Stephen actually takes us there through David and then into Solomon's ministry. Solomon, of course, is the one who would oversee the construction of the temple. But even even in Solomon's day, there was full recognition that God's presence was not restricted to the temple. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 48 to 50. How about that? We just summarized a lot of verses, didn't we? Chapter 7, verses 48 to 50. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet, by the way, this is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Stephen quotes him here, says, verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God's presence was never limited to the temple. That's the point. Even during the days of the construction of the temple, according to God's instruction to Solomon. All right, that's that first answer. The second answer I mentioned to you a moment ago that Stephen offers his accusers is the people of Israel rejected Moses and the law. I don't reject Moses and the law, but you do. You do, Jewish leaders, just as, just as your forefathers did. So in chapter 7, we're going to walk this theme through just a little bit. Chapter 7, verses 23 to 29, Stephen retells the story of Moses killing an Egyptian, and he did so to save an Israelite. So there's an Israelite and an Egyptian, and then there's a quarrel that takes place, and, and uh, the Egyptian, of course, is oppressing the Israelite. The Israelites were serving as slaves in Egypt. And Stephen steps in to rescue the Israelite and he strikes the Egyptian and kills the Egyptian. This, of course, was when Moses would have been about the age of 40 and had been raised up in the daughter of Pharaoh's household, receiving all the education of an Egyptian and yet being, being thoroughly an Israelite. And so he rescues this Israelite by killing the Egyptian And the next day, Moses found two Israelites quarreling. So now there are two Israelites fighting, as it were, and Moses steps in, verses 27 and 28, and uh, one of the Israelites, or perhaps both of them, say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? They're rejecting Moses, you see. And that's, that's what Stephen wants us to see. Moses begins his ministry, at least attempts to begin his ministry, when he's about the age of 40, and he attempts to do so by rescuing some of the people of Israel, but they refuse his rescue. They reject him as a leader. Now look down at chapter 7, verses 38 to 40. We'll read those few verses together. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Now remember, we're talking about Moses, that Moses at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, as Stephen says, and he continues in verse 38, he received living oracles to give to us. Now, by the way, church, what are these living oracles? What is he referring to? The Ten Commandments, the law, right? Remember, one of the accusations against Stephen was you reject Moses and the law. And here he says, of course, I do not. I believe that God had granted the law to us through Moses. Verse, 20, verse 39, excuse me. Our fathers refused to obey him. Now that's the point. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, now you may recall this if you've read through the book of Exodus, Exodus 32 saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
This is while Moses is still on the mountain. And they go to Aaron and they say something like this. We don't know what happened to Moses. So we need, we need gods. Would you construct gods for us? And Aaron foolishly does so using some of the jewelry and so forth that the Israelites provide. And what's the point? What, what point is Stephen making from the beginning of Moses' ministry, from the giving of the law even on Mount Sinai? Israel, our forefathers, rejected the law. It had been no time at all since God had commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And Israel turns and does precisely what God had forbidden, making an image and worshiping it as if it were a representation of the God who had rescued them. They rejected Moses and the law. Now, toward the end of the sermon, Stephen moves from talking about Israel. This is where it gets really controversial. I would imagine if we were standing there listening to Stephen proclaim God's word, I would imagine that the crowd changed at a certain point. I would imagine that when Stephen moved from speaking about Israel in the past, in the third person, they. They rejected Moses. They rejected the law. They rejected God's message and God's messengers. When he transitioned from they to you, I would imagine the crowd instantly changed postures. And this is precisely what we find In chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, Stephen transitions from they to you. Notice with me, verse 53, you stiff-necked people, you obstinate people, you rebellious people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Oh, sure, you have the sign of circumcision on the outside, but it's accomplished Nothing in your heart. We could say it this way, oh sure. You've been baptized in water. But without the transforming presence of the Spirit of God, it benefits you. Nothing. You always resist the Holy Spirit, he says. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's saying, name one. Find a prophet that wasn't persecuted by the people of Israel. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now noticed betrayed and murdered. Who's the righteous one? Jesus, of course. All the prophets spoke about the coming of Jesus. Your forefathers persecuted those who announced the coming of Jesus. You now 
have brought to completion their disobedience by betraying and murdering the one about whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 53, you who received the law is delivered by angels. They boasted about this, right? You didn't keep it. Now, this brings us to Stephen's third answer. I want to touch on this before we get to application. Jesus' third answer, and we've transitioned a little bit to it already. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the temple. And this is really what Stephen is getting at. This is what gets him killed. Look back with me at chapter 7, verse 37. Chapter 7, verse 37. Doing a great job flipping back and forth. Proud of you. It's a way to keep you, keep you awake, keep you engaged, done. There you go. Chapter 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, this is when Stephen's still talking, he's talking about Moses. Remember, this Moses said to the Israelites these words, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses promises a final prophet who would speak God's word to God's people. And this prophecy, of course, according to the New Testament, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final prophet about whom Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And Stephen already begins to point to this. And by the way, for a first century Jew, this text had already become commonplace as a text that prophesied about one who would come as the final messenger from God. That was well accepted. They knew what he was saying. Jesus is the one about whom Moses wrote. And this is why Stephen can say in verse 53 that the Jewish leaders received the law, but they did not keep it. What is keeping the law according to Stephen's sermon? Trusting in the law keeper, Jesus Christ. You can't keep the law, right? You can't obey God perfectly. Try as you might. You will fail every time. In fact, you'll find yourself perhaps even doing the right things on the outside for all the wrong reasons, which of course is contrary to God's law. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is in part Stephen's point. You have not kept the law. You're just like your forefathers They rejected God's message and God's messengers. You now have rejected and killed the messenger, the God-man Jesus Christ. And what's the solution? Repent and believe. Repent of your sins against God and believe in the one who kept the law for you and paid the penalty for your failure to keep the law on the cross, rising, of course, on the third day. Now, let's keep going with this. Jesus is also, in in Stephen's message, he's also the fulfillment of the temple as God's presence given to his people. Recall the accusations, or rather the accusation singular, against Stephen back in chapter 6, verse 14, 
that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple. Remember that? That's one of the accusations. Stephen, is, Stephen, of course, is opposing Moses and the law. He's speaking against Moses and the law. But secondly, he's also speaking against this holy place, the temple. After all, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, that is, the accusers are saying this. The false witnesses, again, false witnesses are saying, Jesus of Nazareth said he would destroy this temple and raise it, as it were, on the third day. Rather, that's the language of John 2. Let me mention that to you while we're at it. John chapter 2, verse 19, uses similar language. It's tricky. You can see how these are false witnesses. They're distorting the truth. Jesus in John 2 doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple, right? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise it up in three days. No, no. Jesus says, you destroy the temple. See? And in three days, I will raise it up. Big difference. And then, of course, John tells us something that is just magnificent. He says, John chapter 2, verse 21 but he was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, I am the fulfillment of God's presence among his people. The temple pointed to me. Which is, of course, why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You see how beautiful this is? And this is the message, as it were, that Stephen is proclaiming in front of the Jewish leaders. Jesus fulfills the law, and he fulfills the purpose of the temple. Friends, I should say this at this point. If you have not come to know and treasure this Jesus, I would invite you to do that this morning. If you've not come to surrender to this Jesus, to give your greatest allegiance to this Jesus, the one who obeyed God's commandments for you, who died in your place paying the penalty that you actually ought to have paid but could not to ransom your own soul, who, after his temple, the temple of his body was destroyed on the third day, was raised from the dead in glorious power for our vindication and justification in Christ. If you've not come to trust in and treasure this Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law and the temple for you, then I would encourage you to do that this morning. Don't leave here. Don't leave here without coming to grips with the one who offers you rescue this morning. The one who offers you his obedience, his righteousness, so that you can stand before God fully assured that you're accepted as a son or a daughter, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what he has done for you and also offers you access to the presence of God through him. If you'd like to know more about Christianity or just talk more, ask more questions, maybe even accept Christ as Lord and Savior over your life and you'd just like someone to walk alongside of you as you do that, we would be thrilled to have a conversation with you after the service. So as you leave this building, if you would, have the boldness and the faith 
to take a left as you walk out of one of these doors. And then on the right-hand side out there is a room called Crossroads. It's clearly labeled. And so go into that room, and there will be one of our church leaders in there who would love to come alongside of you and potentially you alongside of us as we learn what it means to trust in and treasure the one who fulfilled the law and the temple for us. Well, here's what we've done so far, and we've got to wrap this up soon. Uh, We want to feed you all and celebrate the Scarboroughs here in just a few moments. We have identified the accusations against Stephen. And these accusations were he spoke against the temple and he spoke against the law of Moses. Two central identity markers for the Jewish people. Then we observed Stephen's three answers. So he had these three answers to these two accusations. And his answers were were this. First, God's presence was never limited to the temple. His presence was never limited to the temple. Second, the people of Israel rejected Moses and the law, as did the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day. And then third, Stephen declares Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the temple. Finally, I want to conclude our time together considering application. We could be all over the place on this one, and I'm going to try not to be, all right? I'm going to give you two. That's my aim anyway. Two. First, a warning. Second, an exhortation, all right? First, a warning, then an exhortation. Let's start with a warning. The warning comes to us from the example of the Jewish leaders, And I think I'd like to begin it with this. Are you in church? Perhaps baptized. Perhaps a member of the church. Maybe this church. Maybe even a leader of the church. And yet resisting the Holy Spirit of God. Stephen is speaking in the text to the religious leaders of the day. The Archeatrus, the high priest of the day. The chief honcho of Judaism is a part of this group. In fact, he's the one that asks Stephen, what do you say to all these accusations? And so he's one of the ones Stephen is speaking to, and Stephen says, you Always resist the Holy Spirit. Your external circumcision profits you nothing. So might it be for us if our baptism, church membership, identity as a Christian, Christian families, Christian relationships, Christian music, Christian t-shirts, Christian culture, you name it, so might it be for us if there's not genuine faith and surrender to Jesus Christ. So friends, again, ask yourself a tough question. Not, am I perfect? I can give you that answer. You want it? No. And and if you need someone else to confirm, you can turn to a neighbor, especially if that neighbor is a spouse or a family member. They'll be glad to help you understand. No, you're not perfect. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. The question I'm asking is, have you authentically come to grips with that reality and embraced Jesus Christ, giving him your complete allegiance?
seeking the transformation that only he can provide. So that's the first thing. Just consider the warning in the text. Second, let's consider an exhortation that I think grows naturally out of the text. Notice how Stephen is described in chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. This is the very beginning of our text. Stephen, full of grace and what? Power. Yeah, some of you are still turning there. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this description, full of grace and power, is another way of speaking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. You may remember this. You may not. But it's a kind of thesis verse for the entire book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, where Jesus promises this, but you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, don't miss that. So Stephen, being described as full of grace and power, is being described as someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, if you just want confirmation of that, Acts 6, verse 5, describes him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What's the point? What am I getting at here? Stephen as someone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, the true temple, has himself, through faith in Christ, become a temple of God. Amen. You get that? Who lives in Stephen? God the Holy Spirit. You see, I'm going to trip over myself here. God the Holy Spirit lives in Stephen. And so now Stephen, as a follower of Christ, serves, as it were, as God's temple, declaring God's message. Amen. What a privilege this is. So here's the exhortation. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, and you therefore are God's temple, don't miss that. Here's the exhortation. Live as God's temple. It's who you are. It's who you are, dear brother, dear sister. If you know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God lives inside of you, live in light of the presence of God in your life. And so you don't have to, as it were, conjure up your own strength and abilities to serve the Lord. He provides all of it for you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is, by the way, where Paul takes the concept in 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking about sexual immorality. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual immorality is improper among God's people. Why? Because God's people are God's temple. And to use the body for something that dishonors God is a contradiction to the identity of what it means to be the church, the dwelling place of God, or what it means to be an individual Christian. Now, but there's one more sense, and I really wanted to say this before I close, so I'm going to. This is only the third closing, Jim. So I'm nowhere near the record at this point. There's another sense of what it means to live as God's temple in Acts. And we're going to get here more and more, but I want to say it here. Throughout Stephen's sermon, here's what, here's what he does. He highlights God's presence with God's people, right? God was present with Abraham. God was present with, with Joseph, right? God was present with 
Moses, and so on and so forth. God was present with Joshua and David and Solomon. But throughout the sermon, if you'll go back and trace it, we're not going to do that right now. You can do it later. God was present with his people as they were going. He says this a lot in the sermon. Abraham is going from Mesopotamia to Haran, and then he's going from Haran to Canaan, you see. Joseph is going to Egypt where you don't want to go. You don't want to go there if you're a Jew. Well, that's where he's going. But who's with him? God is with him. God was with Abraham. God is with Joseph, you see. So it is with Moses. Moses has to leave Egypt where he was raised, and he goes to Midian. Who's with Moses as he goes to Midian? God is with him. God meets Moses in Midian, and then he goes from Midian back to Egypt. Who's with Moses when he goes back to Egypt? God is with him, you see. Who's with Moses and the people of Israel as they leave Egypt and go to Mount Sinai and travel throughout the wilderness? God is with his people. So here's what I want you to get. Part of Stephen's point is that God's temple is never stagnant. God goes with his people as his people go to the nations with the message of the gospel. In the New Testament, this really blossoms. But it's really a way of unpacking the Old Testament narrative God promises his presence to his people as they travel. It's consistently the case. Why is it that the Maples, James and Brittany Maples, our dear beloved family from First Baptist Powell, can take up and go back to Kenya because God goes with them? I mean, how is it that we can send a group of students and a group of leaders from Powell, Tennessee to Utah because God goes with them? You see? Why is it that you should consider getting outside of your comfort zone and perhaps even getting on a plane to take the gospel to people who need to hear the gospel because God promises his presence to his people as they go? And that's massive for Stephen. It's massive in the text. And so we're just going to read two verses, and I'm going to pray. Matthew 28 19 and 20. Go, therefore. We could even say, as the temple, as God's presence to the world, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. With what confidence? Why do we go? What does Jesus say? And behold, I am with you always. That's the promise. That's what Stephen is declaring. Christ is with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I am grateful to have had the joy and the privilege of opening up your word this morning. Doubtless there are things I could have said and did not, perhaps things I said and didn't need to say. I just trust it to you. Use. Use a weak, fragile instrument in your hands to declare your word to your people so that we might more faithfully, passionately, and effectively live as your temple and go as your temple to the nations. Beginning right here in Powell, Tennessee, go declaring this glorious gospel message that Stephen declared with confidence that you are with us through Christ, by the Spirit, even to the end of the age. Father, we praise you. We worship you. And we pray, Lord God, that you would continue the work that you have begun in us for your glory. Through Christ we pray and all God's people said, amen.